to this New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Stephen Mnuchin, the US Treasury Secretary, is probably the world's most powerful financial official. Last summer, he sounded the alarm bell about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Mnuchin said, there's growing misuse of cryptocurrencies and of other virtual assets that operate outside the traditional banking system by money launderers, terrorists and other illicit actors. So what's he proposing to do about it? The US government, along with 35 other countries, wants to bring in new rules affecting cryptocurrency exchanges. Exchanges are the places where we can exchange cryptocurrency for dollars, euros, pounds or yen. What governments want is to introduce a new rule forcing those exchanges to start obtaining, holding and sharing information on the people making transfers of virtual assets like Bitcoin. And they also want exchanges to start recording the same information for the people receiving those transfers. Now, this kind of approach works well in the traditional banking system. If you have a bank account, it will have an international bank account number or IBAN, which helps anyone with the IBAN to identify you, your bank and your country. But in cryptocurrencies, there's no such identifying information. Bitcoins, for example, are held at a Bitcoin address, and that address is just a randomly generated selection of letters and numbers. You can link that Bitcoin address to any past addresses through which the Bitcoins have traveled in a chain, but there's nothing telling you who any of the addresses in the chain belong to, unless, of course, governments can force intermediaries like exchanges to disclose who might be associated with a particular address at some point in the chain. And if governments can use the new rules to identify both the sender and receiver of Bitcoin, even better from their point of view. But can governments really lean on cryptocurrency exchanges in this way and end up throwing light on all the current owners of Bitcoin and other virtual assets? Or is that technologically impossible, as some people say? To help answer those questions, I'm joined on today's podcast by David Carlyle, who is Head of Community at Elliptic, and by Obi Nuoso, who is Chief Executive of CoinFloor. Elliptic helps cryptocurrency exchanges comply with government rules by trying to identify risky transactions or actors. And CoinFloor is a cryptocurrency exchange that was set up in London in 2013. David, let me start with you. There's been a lot of uh, discussion in the last few months about a new um, rule that global governments are requesting. It's called the Financial Action Task Force Travel Rule, uh, and it imposes a a requirement on so-called virtual asset service providers to uh, retain and transmit information on the originator and the recipient of a transfer in in virtual assets. David, can I start by asking you to put this uh, new development into context uh, and explain how this fits into the evolution of cryptocurrency regulation. Sure. Well, um, the, the travel rule specifically is a long-standing requirement that the mainstream financial sector has implemented some time. It's part of the uh, FATF's um, global anti-money laundering standards, and is really designed to ensure and enable end-to-end transparency in Uh, online financial transactions. And what the travel rule says 
In effect, is that when one financial institution sends funds on behalf of their customer to someone else at another financial institution, that originating institution needs to collect information about the identity of the recipient, uh, transfer that information to the recipient institution, and both institutions need to maintain that information in their records so that the information can be made available to law enforcement. And the idea behind this is that you want to avoid a world in which there are sort of unnumbered Swiss bank accounts and people can just be sending money around the world anonymously. Okay, Tim, can I ask you a question at that point? How well suited is this approach from the traditional financial system to cryptocurrencies? Because in the traditional system, you have a concept of know your customer. You know, each institution knows its own customers. Uh, there are specific rules to prevent money laundering. You know, can this approach simply be lifted and applied to cryptocurrencies? And if not, why not? And this has been a subject of really tremendous debate across the industry since the FATF formally proposed this measure uh, back in February of this year. And I think to a large degree, there are many instances in which AM, existing AML requirements can be sort of transcribed to the cryptocurrency world. Um, something that we may be able to talk about more, but many cryptocurrency exchanges can do and are able to apply KYC when onboarding customers to their platform. Uh, but the travel rule presents some specific technical challenges that have led a lot of observers in the industry to question whether it should have been applied to the crypto space. Now, in the traditional financial sector, um, banks uh, can send funds to one another uh, knowing comfortably that there will always be a regulated institution on the other side of an electronic transfer. If I want to transfer funds from my bank to you all through uh, my online banking, there's always going to be another financial institution on the other end of that transaction who can receive that customer data. In the crypto world, obviously, that's not the case. Uh, crypto exists to get part to get rid of certain financial intermediaries. So there's a question as to can this requirement that applies to a world where there are well and readily identifiable financial intermediaries be, be transposed to the crypto space? Um, there's been a lot of debate about this concept and whether it is actually possible to comply. Uh, we at Elliptic and a lot of other uh, stakeholders in the industry have been looking at whether it is possible to comply technically and looking at potential solutions to do so. Uh, I think increasingly there is a view that it, it likely is possible to enable uh, compliance with the travel rule in the crypto space, but with some important caveats. Uh, any technical solution would look very different potentially from solutions that have been applied to uh, enable the mainstream banking sector to comply with this requirement. So in the mainstream banking world, you have SWIFT, which enables banks to communicate with one another and send funds, to, uh, send information to one another about customer transactions uh, and, and the identity of those customers. Um, but in the crypto space where you have pseudonymous wallets, um, where it's often sometimes a challenge to identify who sits behind those wallets, you would need other technical solutions that uh, don't look like sort of the traditional solutions necessarily to potentially enable that to happen. Yeah. Let me bring let me bring Obi in at this uh, point. So, Obi, um, I spoke to you on this topic a couple of months ago, and you, you, your uh, reaction at the time was to say that this uh, requirement to share sender and recipient information, which is being imposed on the exchanges, uh, could uh, first of all compromise customers' data, but also, more importantly, 
uh, impede the FATF's objectives by pushing trading activity underground. Is that still your opinion? Um, I, my opinion continues to move forward since then, but it, there are still valid elements to it. So high level, um, as David mentioned, there are people around, there are many people around the world who are looking at this in the space. We as an exchange um, uh, obviously have a unique perspective. And what we see is that there are two sets of deposits or withdrawal transactions that can be made. You have transactions that go from one pseudo or pseudo financial institution, whether it's the crypto exchange or, or regulated or not, to another crypto exchange. Um, and then there are transactions that users can make to, to and from their own personal wallets. Um, unlike the traditional space, people can be their own bank. And from a um, technology and a technological point of view, transferring to a user is no different than transferring to another exchange. However, um, upon one read of the um, travel rule, it would suggest that transfers to, to an individual's own account would be out with, um, reg out with this travel regulation. If that's the case, um, you may find people effectively circumventing this by just requiring, um, insisting that their withdrawals are made to themselves personally. And at that point... Which means to their... To the, oh, we just understand. So you're saying that if people uh, withdraw uh, crypto... Uh, assets from an exchange such as yours to their own hardware wallet, then that would fall outside the... Yes, if, if, if they effectively withdraw to their own hardware wallet or software wallet, it would be the equivalent of someone withdrawing cash from a bank. Um, the only difference is they can withdraw cash from a bank, but digitally in any level they want and, and as quickly as they could take to withdraw it to another bank account owned by, operated by another bank. So um, you may see an increase in people withdrawing to their own personal account. And if they do that, because they are, they are their own bank, they have um, the capability from then to withdraw to, to transfer to anybody they want to. And as they're not a, a regulated um, entity, they would, they would not have to follow the travel rule. So you may see a significant increase in that as, a, um, as a, an individual approach to, to dealing with this. So we, we, so we could put in processes okay. to, to follow the travel rule um, when it comes to transfers between exchanges. But um, if people are just withdrawing personally, then they are effectively sidestepping that. David, let me come back to you. I mean, the, the, the FATF uh, is, uh, I think, uh, now over 30 countries, uh, part of it. Um, and there are two countries in the world that are blacklisted by the FATF, uh, Iran and North Korea. Let's say, um, uh, you know, hypothetically, someone in North Korea is mining uh, Bitcoin and, uh, you know, they have a, uh, the, the, you know, the requisite hardware. They, they manage to mine some Bitcoin and then they can send it. They want to send it to somewhere else in the world, either for some form of value or for some other purpose. I mean, this, these rules are not going to be able to stop that, are they? But they wouldn't necessarily be able to stop the information you described where uh, the FATF's requirements do have greater impact, though, is at the point where an illicit actor may need to or would want to interact with a regulated entity. So if at a certain point you say a North Korean actor who had 
obtained funds through mining, uh, if they just transfer the funds to their own personal wallet after having mined them, uh, as Obi was describing, uh, the travel rule has no applicability there because there's no regulated actor. But if at some stage they want to cash out or if they want to make use of those funds using a regulated product of some one sort or another, the overwhelmingly likelihood is that they would need to act with an actor who, a VASP, uh, as you described, a virtual asset service provider, who is obliged to follow the FATS guidance, and so who therefore would need to apply KYC requirements uh, if they were going to transfer those funds further onward, would then potentially need to apply the travel rule. So uh, the, the status requirements they don't cover every single type of activity uh, that might operate in the crypto space, and because of the peer-to-peer -peer nature of crypto, there are certain types of activity that I think by definition they, they really can't cover. Um, but the fact of guidance that was released in June, I think nonetheless does provide a very robust and expansive framework that ensures there are more covered entities who need to apply AML requirements and could potentially identify illicit actors where they internet interact with the regulated financial system. Okay, but just to be clear, I mean, let's say to take that North Korean example again, let's say the, uh, the miner in North Korea wants to buy a tanker of oil from a Chinese entity, it could do that, presumably in a bilateral basis, pay their Chinese entity in Bitcoin uh, by direct transfer, and then the Chinese entity is left with the Bitcoin, they, they could then sell it as they wished. I mean, you, that would just be a direct way around the rules as in this particular example. In the example you described, yes. And I think that's where, uh, when you read the fact of guidance, one of the things that they point to repeatedly in the guidance when it comes to the risks around cryptocurrencies is the cross-border nature of cryptocurrencies and the fact that they do enable what are relatively seamless uh, cross-border transfers with no intermediary and that's um, that's perceived as a substantial risk by, by global regulators. So the kind of, for me at least it begs the question what is the point of it trying to impose this uh, financial regulation based upon the concept of you know good actors and bad actors out there on something which where the technology really doesn't allow you to distinguish between the two. Any, any thoughts on that, Obi or David? I, yes. Um, see, the, this is where we have to be careful with regulation. We need to have appropriate regulation. There was a lot of, um, most of the FADF regulation is, is um, very applicable, easily in, implementable, and there was broad um, approval for it. This particular travel rule was had had quite broad uh, um, pushback from the from the um, crypto space. This, the part of the crypto space that is uh, attempting to um, have cryptocurrencies regulated in an appropriate manner, because we think that this can have a, a potentially negative effect um, in terms of the objectives of the regulation. Um, the problem is, is with something like cryptocurrency that is borderless and can be transferred anywhere in seconds, um, pseudonymously, if you um, place too strict regulation in place, um, you will incentivize people to um, take other approaches to transferring, um, transferring between different um, entities and between um, other people. Now, um, the problem we have with this in this particular case is that um, in the example you gave, someone could transfer between two parties. They will then need to work out how to, to take 
the the cryptocurrency that they've they've earned from the from the transaction in your in the the transaction that's undesired in the example you've given and effectively place that back into the into the regulated space now although that's going to be challenging um, it's still not beyond the wit of man to be able to do that um, and but it takes a lot of effort but the more effort it is to to work within the system in a normal way the more normal people or people well, said not normal but more people who are just just performing day-to-day transactions um, will start to choose to do that as well and the harder it will be to separate um, the transactions that you're that a particular jurisdiction is doesn't want to occur with the transactions that are that are completely normal and um, and are fine for them to occur making their task of identifying them and stopping them harder Obi, have you noticed any any difference in the way people have uh, traded cryptocurrencies since the draft rules first came out in June? No, there's absolutely no difference, and um, I think for a, for a site like like Coinfloor, there will won't be any difference. I don't think even after the FATF rules come in place, I think you may see people withdrawing more frequently to their own personal wallet versus withdrawing directly to Coinbase if they have a um, concerns around privacy, but the majority of our customers won't. I don't think they will care too much about that because they will be looking to arbitrage between exchanges. They they are fully KYC'd on all the exchanges, so it doesn't make a difference if you you um, you transfer um, in whatever me- mechanism is finally determined to do this KYC information between them. But there are a whole set of very large. Um, exchanges out there that maybe deal with a, a larger customer base, um, um, broader, more retail, etc., um, who will have a, probably a very different story. Um, and therefore, they will have, it'll be much more of a challenge for them. And they'll probably be um, seeing significant changes close to the time of implementation. David, um, what uh, longer-term impact on the structure of the cryptocurrency industry do you expect this rule to have if it's fully implemented? Yeah, well, I think it really comes down to a question of whether the industry can uh, implement technical solutions to the travel rule with minimal friction uh, and in ways that avoid creating excessive costs that would potentially incentivize the migration of behavior off of regulated platforms into less transparent and opaque channels. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, at Liptic, we're working with our partners across the industry to uh, pursue a number of technical solutions that would potentially enable compliance with the travel rules so that exchanges, when they do facilitate transactions with one another, uh, can do so in, in as seamless a fashion as possible and with uh, reduce com- cost to their compliance that they would have to pass on to their customers and that would then potentially incentivize customers to move elsewhere. Um, you know, that's certainly going to be a challenge. And from our perspective at Elliptic, we think it's very important that the industry work together to collaborate in finding solutions that work for the industry as a whole, uh, are built with consensus and with an understanding of standards so that there isn't just kind of a, a rush to implement the requirements in sort of an ad hoc and messy way that maybe just uh, leaves exchanges with with uh, 
with uh, major challenges that they struggle to implement, and that pushes customers off their platform. That's that's nobody's objective, and I don't think that's really ultimately the objective of regulators. And so uh, we and a number of uh, others across the industry, certain industry organizations, are working closely to have a discussion with regulators to try to minimize the impacts in practical terms of the, the rule when it's implemented. Um, you know, that said, uh, I, I th certainly think there are some, some practical challenges that will present uh, to, to exchanges out there. Uh, it means that exchanges will have to uh, potentially screen more customers for uh, things like exposure to sanctions, um, this, uh, or, or the prohibited blacklists. Um, so th there will certainly be some impact, but I think if done in, in the right way, it can it can be done in a way that, that maybe avoids some of the adverse impacts that we'd like to see, but that, in, that requires a really, I think, closely coordinated dialogue between stakeholders involved, whether it's uh, solutions providers and those looking at technical solutions to the problem, uh, exchanges and regulators as well. David, I mean, you worked in the past at the US Treasury on, on sanctions policy. Um, doesn't cryptocurrency as a technology represent a significant challenge for the way that the US traditionally policed the global financial system, if that's the right word? Because up until, under the traditional system, if the US government finds that a bank has been conducting business in certain parts of the world with entities it doesn't like, it can, it can and has levied you know, many billions of dollars of fines on that particular institution and banned it from doing business. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that is much more challenging to do. That, that approach simply doesn't work in effect in a, in a, in a peer-to-peer technology like uh, cryptocurrency for transferring value. I mean, surely they have to reevaluate the way that they're thinking about their you know, future role in the financial system, the US government. Sure, yeah, no, I think there's definitely truth in that. I mean, I think I wouldn't go so far as to say that existing AML regulatory frameworks can't apply to the crypto space or can't have relevance. Um, you know, I, I think when you look at the United States, for example, it was probably one of the, the first movers in terms of setting up a regulatory framework or at least issuing regulatory guidance around cryptocurrencies going back to about 2013. Uh, and, you know, certainly what we see at Elliptic, there's data to suggest that that's had a significant impact in terms of actually reducing the amount of illicit cryptocurrency flows that go through the United States uh, because of the transparency inherent in a lot of cryptocurrency blockchains. We can see, in effect, how much illicit activity is flowing through certain parts of the world. And we can see that the U.S. is, is having some impact in the sense that uh, as a proportion of the whole, less illicit activity occurs there than in some other places. So I, I think AML regulation can have an impact, but I certainly think there are components of the cryptocurrency space or features of the technology that, that don't fit well with certain types of traditional regulation. And um, it is important that regulators think carefully about uh, whether they're, they're uh, potentially trying to fit square pegs into round holes in certain instances and whether new approaches may be needed. And I think there are certain um, initiatives underway, um, certain uh, things specific regulators are doing around the world to uh, try and be a bit more nimble in terms of how they approach not just crypto, but financial technology more broadly when it comes to things like sandbox frameworks that um, maybe allow the testing of new products under the eye of regulators. So um, no doubt, I think there are, there are 
ways in which it is it is an ill fit, and I think regulators probably need to be a bit more forward thinking in terms of how um, they can adapt regulatory frameworks to this new technology. Um, but I, I do think you know there there are some respects in which we've seen that um, at least certain components of AML regulation can work, and uh, you know cryptocurrency businesses like Coinfloor and others out there are able to um, comply with regulation successfully and, and have an impact in terms of um, ensuring that the, the cryptocurrency space isn't exposed to excessive amounts of crime. Yeah. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that um, you know, cryptocurrency is as a percentage of a whole, um, uh, criminal activity is still relatively small. Um, you know, it's certainly there, um, but you know, the, there are effective ways to mitigate it. Right. So you're saying that the most uh, money laundering is still done with suitcases of $100 bills or shell companies trading property in certain centers around the world rather than in cryptocurrency? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think that's, you know, obviously it's a question of volume. There's a lot more yeah. cash than there is cryptocurrency floating around in the world. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. even as a percentage of a whole, I mean, cryptocurrencies are very, in many cases, very traceable. Uh, you know, companies like Elliptic, we yeah. provide solutions that make it possible to follow the flow of illicit cryptocurrencies so that the exchanges can keep those funds from uh, entering their platform or exit customer relationships where they think there may be illicit activity occurring. Yeah. Um, and so we see that has a material impact in terms of keeping the relative amount of crime that occurs within cryptocurrency yeah. relatively low. Uh, Obi, let me ask you about uh, that point David has just made. That, that, you know, they, I know that uh, companies like Elliptic and its competitors provide uh, risks, if I understand it correctly, they provide a, a risk scoring mechanism for certain uh, cryptocurrency addresses so that helps to help you identify which who you should and should not be uh, dealing with. Is there a, a risk that this kind of regulation will lead to a kind of split in the market between, uh, let's say, bitcoins that are seen as clean and those that are seen as tainted? Is there any evidence that there's a sort of widening of uh, trading spreads between one type of coin and another, or have, has nothing changed compared to, let's say, a year ago? This is the the biggest risk of um, uh, blockchain monitoring technologies like Elliptic and Chainalysis uh, and others in the market. Um, but let me take a step back. First of all, in terms of implementing um, appropriate compliance processes, AML, um, anti-money laundering and countering terrorist financing processes, uh, there is a lot of traditional um, knowledge and best practice that can be implemented in the crypto space. Um, and we, we do that and, and many um, exchanges um, in the space do that. And we expect to see that to continue and be enhanced over time. And that's very effective. We also see um, the use of technologies like Elliptic um, as another really effective tool um, in the arsenal as part of a suite of tools, um, sanctions, PEP sanctions, checking and so on, monitoring processes, adverse media checks and all sorts of stuff together um, in terms of understanding our customer, um, understanding the, the flows of of capital in and out of the system, both fiat and crypto. So as part of that arsenal um, and a part of that tool set, they are, they are very effective um, elements of that. However, um, we also see, and as someone who's a crypto um, um, aficionado and, and really wants to, and, and really believes in the power of, of uh, 
decentralized cryptocurrencies, we see that um, almost inevitably there is this bifurcation of, of, of occurring of um, within any given cryptocurrency. So if we take Bitcoin, for example, there are um, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin that is newly minted, so newly mined by a Bitcoin miner after as a reward for processing transactions and protecting the, the blockchain, um, can have a, a premium over um, Bitcoin that has been transacted for some period of time because there is a, a higher confidence that it's, it's going to be by almost any jurisdiction seen as clean. Can you quantify um, how big that premium is? I can't. It changes all the time. It's a market, so it's a I mean, rough, Roughly, I mean, within what range? I I can't really tell you at this point in time, um, but it's it's. I mean, I would guess it's a uh, it's in the low few percentage points, but it is still okay. there is a distinct difference in 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 the price that people are willing to pay. Um, and that's just so I understand how this works. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. So that you, uh, you you see those those coins and they come to you. You you can risk score them using let's say elliptics uh, technology, and 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 it gives you a presumably a hundred percent clean rating. Is that how it works? Um, coins that are newly minted will have a a, um, a a score attached to them, and that will be a yes, a, a, either very high or the highest score. Then there, then there are. Um, then they go on the journey. They get transacted from hand to from um, well from wallet to wallet to wallet, um, from private key to private key, um, and user to user. And um, if they've maintained a path through, um, or if they've maintained a path through um, trusted, identified, and known um, hands, they will have a higher confidence and score attached to them than if they went through. Um, things like a darknet market, etc., or, or it looked like they went through the wallet of a of a terror of a that had, had previously been identified as belonging to some sort of terrorist organization, um, and so naturally, just given the nature of regulation, you you would start to effectively bifurcate currencies from. Um, at some point, there'll be a line, and they'll be identified as. Um, Clean or not clean. The the problem with this is this strikes at the heart of a currency's need to be fungible, and um, and that is a big concern for for the um, cryptocurrency space. And there's a lot of work um, being made to um, increase fungibility, not because of the objective of aiding. Um, uh, aiding certain people that um, jurisdictions that uh, have identified as as parties that they don't want to um, um, transact in this way, but because it it protects the average consumer. You don't want to walk into a uh, uh, into a store, buy something with your cryptocurrency, and then the store owner to be aware of your your current cash balance as a result. For example, that that would be very dangerous for yourself. So, um, because you may be met around the corner with your with the with the store owners' cousins and and friends um, in a dark alley moments later. So, um, this is a challenge for the industry. How do we maintain um, people's financial privacy so that they can interact with people in a in a manner which is which keeps them safe, while also um, 
while also dealing with the concerns of jurisdictions um, and their desire to um, avoid money laundering or, or, yeah. or funding of terrorism. So there's, so there's, a, there's a tension between uh, between making sure that the the, the, the the privacy technology works as people might want to ensure the currency is fungible and the requirements of governments to try and stop illicit actors using the currency. And, and, that, is the, and that is the tightrope that we have to follow. And, and this is where things like the travel rule, by people who are in the industry, we think that that is maybe there's a risk that that's, that's going on, that's going a little bit too far on this sort of very delicate balance. And the end result will be it will... It, 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 will, it could potentially have negative effects as a result, and we and that's what we want to try and avoid. If it leads to the development of much uh, more, it'll, much stronger privacy technologies that allow people to basically to hide whatever they do. Um, I, I think the, the development of those technologies so is something that we actually want to see happen, but um, we yeah. want to see them happen with a view to still allowing um, regulators around the world to achieve their objectives. If, if what, and if um, what we don't want to see happening is these being developed without any consideration for that because, because it doesn't seem that the regulators are not interested in striking this balance. And that's what could happen if, 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 if regulators don't take that balanced view. David, do you agree with uh, what, you know, where we stand in this fine uh, balance between you know, privacy technology and uh, regulatory compliance, as Obi has described it? Yeah, I do think there's, there's I think he summarized it well, and there, there are absolutely um, points of tension there that require a very careful consideration by regulators, industry, and, and all stakeholders who, who are involved in the space. You know, I, I think there's sometimes a perception out there that companies like Elliptic, we're sort of anti-privacy or, you know, um, or something to that effect. I, I don't think that's the case at all. And, um, you know, we see ourselves really as providing regulated businesses with the tools they need to be able to make informed decisions uh, that are consistent with their regulatory obligations. But we don't see that as... Um, you know, incompatible with the notion of there being, uh, you know, privacy coins or, or other technologies that exist within the broader ecosystem that enable uh, people to have uh, privacy and, and confidentiality around their transactions. I think, just as Obi said, though, um, not only at the regular level of regulators, but among those who are developing those technologies, there, there needs to be a, regu- a recognition of the need to achieve multiple aims. And, um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of challenges there for, for the industry, but, uh, you know, there are also a lot of very innovative people in the space who are experimenting with some very compelling technologies that potentially have the ability to um, bridge the gap between uh, you know, regulatory objectives around AML on one hand and, and privacy concerns on the other. David and Obi, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting chat. A topic is, uh, I think, which is not going to go away. Uh, so I look forward to revisiting it with you both uh, in, in future. And thank you both uh, for participating and sharing your views. Thank you very much. Thank you.
for listening to this new Money Review podcast. The world of money is changing fast. We see new stores of value like cryptocurrencies, new ways of paying each other like contactless and digital wallets, and new ways of recording ownership. New Money Review's articles and our podcast can help you stay on top of what's going on. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-off donation or a regular payment. Details of how to do so are on our website, newmoneyreview.com, at the bottom right of our homepage.